Uh, so we'll look at John chapter 4, starting at verse 28. It says, So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, look, lift your, up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. So they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Well, food holds an incredible power over us that may be stronger than anything else in the physical realm, at least. Uh, for example, my one-year-old son... He can go from being content and perfectly uh, happy to going into a full-blown rage if he gets hungry. Like the other day, I was peeling an orange for him, and apparently I wasn't peeling it fast enough. And so he was just going ballistic because I can't peel the orange fast enough. But it's not just children, it's also all of us. You know, there's a word for that, that we, that's just come out kind of recently. It's hangry. If you're hungry, you get kind of irritable, you get kind of uh, contentious sometimes, your blood sugar maybe drops a little bit, and it has an effect on us. And uh, I've kind of struggled with weight kind of my whole life and kind of dieted and, and, and all that kind of thing. And the thing that's difficult about dieting is that food is kind of interwoven into everything that we do. Uh, it's interwoven into our daily lives. You know, we are you know, taught we have three, three meals and you go to work and then maybe you kind of look forward to having lunch and then you look forward to having dinner. And then we have these holidays which are all kind of built around food. I mean, what do you think about when you think about Thanksgiving? You think about pie and stuffing and turkey. When you think about Christmas, you think about a lot of things, but there's, you might think about Christmas cookies, Christmas dinner. Get to Valentine's Day. You go out for a nice dinner. You cook a nice dinner at home. Think about Easter. Easter, what do you think about? Chocolate. Nice Easter dinner. You get to the summer. Ice cream. Barbecue. You get back to October, Halloween. Candy. I mean, food is kind of interwoven into all of our traditions and holidays, and it's kind of hard to break out of that. There's a movie called Over the Hedge. It's a cartoon kids movie. Anyone, you guys have seen it? Anybody else seen it? A few of you? I actually haven't seen it. Uh, but apparently there's a uh, raccoon in the story that steals food from a bear. And the bear gets angry about that. And he threatens this raccoon that if he doesn't pay back all of this food, then the raccoon's going to become a snack for the bear. 
And so this raccoon named RJ gets kind of this other, a group of other animals to kind of work together. And these other animals have just kind of uh, waking up from hibernation. And so they start going to try to find food. And RJ tries to get them to go to the place where humans are. But they're a little bit reluctant, and the turtle named Vern says this. He says, could we just get the food and go? Really, do they have it or not, speaking of the humans? And RJ answers this way. He says, they've always got food with them. We eat to live. These guys live to eat. Let me show you what I'm talking about. He then takes his friends on a whirlwind tour of human life from an animal's perspective. He says, the human mouth is called a pie hole. They're watching a close-up of a man eating a sandwich. He says the human being is called a couch potato as they see a man sitting on a sofa. He says that's a device to summon food. A woman talks on a telephone. He says that is one of the many voices of food. That is the portal for passing of the food as a delivery man rings a doorbell and hands a pizza to the homeowner through a doorway. He says that's one of the many food transportation devices. The pizza delivery guy drives away on a motorcycle. He says humans bring the food, take the food, ship the food, and they drive the food. They see various food transportation trucks drive by. They wear the food. One of the trucks has a picture of two men wearing an ice cream cone and a popsicle. They get the food hot. He points to meat on a barbecue grill. He says they, that, that keeps the food cold, a cooler with bottles. He says, that I'm not sure what that is, children hitting a swinging pinata and candy falling out. They say, that, that is the altar where they worship food, as the animals are looking through a window at a family praying around a dining room table. They say, that is what they eat when they eat too much food. They watch a TV commercial of two antacid tablets dissolving in a glass of water. RJ says, that gets rid of the guilt so they can eat more food. They see a woman uh, on a treadmill. RJ says, food, food, food. They see a woman with cucumber slices on her eyes and one person throwing a pie in another person's face. Food, he says. So you think they have enough? Well, they don't. For humans, enough is never enough. See, our lives are, in many ways, revolve around food. And there's nothing intrinsically wrong about food and uh, about the celebrations we have. We come together and we enjoy food and we all need food for nourishment. But in the passage that we're looking at today, Jesus is afflicted by a very common condition, hunger. Uh, in, this, in verse 6, it says that uh, Jesus was wearied from his journey, and that's why he comes to this well, and he's sitting at the well where he talks to a Samaritan woman, and we talked about that encounter last week. And so he's thirsty, he's hungry, and it's like, have you ever been outside working, doing uh, physical labor, or maybe it's hot outside, and then it comes to dinner time, and you're just ravenous. Like last week, I put up Christmas lights, and it took uh, quite, a, quite a while to do so. I had to drive all over the place trying to find Christmas lights. Everybody was kind of sold out of them. Finally got up and put them back. We had, had uh, pizza for dinner, and I just felt like I could eat that entire pizza. I mean, there's something about a, a, you know, working outside uh, or being really busy that sometimes makes us really hungry. Now, Jesus has been on a long journey, at least from a walking standpoint, and he's weary, he's tired, he's thirsty, he's hungry. And so the disciples leave him at the well. We don't know for sure why they left him at the well, but probably because he was so tired, he just needed to kind of catch his breath and just take a rest. 
So they go into the city to find food, and then they bring back food to Jesus, offer it to him, and he's like, that's okay, I'm good, I don't need no food, I'm not hungry. And they're like, Rabbi, eat, and they're concerned about him. I mean, this is a culture where it's not like uh, people had a lot of extra uh, sustenance to sustain them. I mean, they were going from meal to meal, and this is a hot climate. They've been on a long journey, and they're wondering, like, is he going to pass out? Like, why isn't he eating? Is he sick? What's wrong with him? So they're saying, Rabbi, eat. And then Jesus says this. He says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And Jesus goes on, and he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So why does Jesus do this? Why does Jesus refuse this food even though he's hungry? We know he's hungry. He's been on a long journey. He hasn't eaten in some time. His disciples know this. So why does he refuse this food? I think he's trying to communicate that his desire to do the will of God, to accomplish the Father's mission, is stronger than his desire for food. And that's a remarkable thing for him to kind of uh, demonstrate because we know the effects that food has on our body. We know what happens when we're hungry. We know how it affects our emotions. We know how it affects our body. And especially Jesus being out there in a hot climate, we know what effect that would have on him. And yet he says, my desire is greater to do the will of God than my desire for food. When I was growing up, uh, my parents never had a hard time getting me to eat. Uh, never was an issue. When it came to, to dinner time, I would eat what was in front of me. Uh, if food wasn't ready at the time when I was hungry, I would go and find food. Never an issue for me. My brother was a little bit different. See, my brother, uh, usually he would eat okay, but if he got really into something, if he really got excited about what he was doing, uh, food wouldn't even be on his radar. Uh, like if he went to Chuck E. Cheese or he had a birthday party and had friends over, it would come to be lunch or dinner time and the food would be ready. He'd be like, oh, I'm not hungry. Or he'd eat like two bites of a sandwich and be like, oh, I'm full. I can't eat anymore. If, he, if, he, if it was something else that was more important to him, he would just kind of forget about food. It wouldn't even be on his radar. And I think that's kind of what's happening in this passage. Jesus is so excited about doing the will of God that food isn't even on his radar. Even though food has such a strong physical impact on the body, he isn't even thinking about that. And so what is happening in this passage? What is so extraordinary? What is Jesus so excited about? Well, it is an extraordinary and remarkable thing that's happening these Samaritans are coming and hearing the message of this woman who says, come tell me everything uh, that I ever did. They're coming out in droves. And Jesus says something interesting in verse 35. He says, do you not say there are yet four months and then the harvest? Now that's kind of the ordinary way that life works. You know, you have a uh, time of tilling the soil, then you plant a seed in the soil, and then you have to water it and tend it and, and weed it. And then after several months, then you reap the harvest. So that's the ordinary way that life works. But Jesus says in this situation, the harvester, the harvest and the sowing are happening at the same time. And I can't say for sure, but I think what he means here is that you have these Samaritans who don't have kind of the, 
the Old Testament Jewish history, at least not in the same way that the Jews do. They, they're not prepared for the Messiah in the same way that the Jews were prepared for this Messiah. And yet Jesus comes and he preaches the gospel to this woman. He reveals who he is, plants the seed, so to speak, and immediately people are coming to faith in Christ. Remember last week he declared uh, clearly who he was. He says, I am the Son of God. And now all of these Samaritans are coming. And, and it's just such, this, uh, such a joyous occasion to see all of these people coming to recognize and believe in Jesus. And because of this, Jesus is delighting in what the Father is doing. And food isn't even on his radar. So Jesus is sowing the seed, reaping the harvest at the same time. And, and then Jesus goes on and he tells uh, his disciples, that they were sent to reap what they did not sow. Now, we're not told exactly what mission he was talking about. We don't have a record of him being, uh, of them being sent to uh, do a certain mission, at least in this context here. But apparently they were sent to, to do a certain mission. And he says, you are reaping what you did not sow. And I believe what he's talking about here is that they had kind of the Old Testament prophets... Uh, ending in John the Baptist, who had kind of prepared the way for the Messiah. And so they, they were kind of heralds saying, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming, and then Jesus comes, and then the disciples are just like, he's here, he's here, he's here. And they're just kind of reaping the harvest, reaping upon the work of the Old Testament prophets. And, and I think, in a sense, the same thing is true for us as believers, now, we think about the work of Jesus and the life of Jesus, and I've always thought, wouldn't it be cool to live during the time that Jesus was alive? I mean, wouldn't it be cool to see some of his miracles and to uh, sit at his feet and to hear his teachings? Now, that would have really been remarkable. would have been a great privilege. But there's also some kind of disadvantages of living during that time, too. Unless you were kind of in Jesus' inner circle, and even if you were in Jesus' inner circle of 12 you probably wouldn't fully understand what was happening. You'd probably miss a lot of things. You probably wouldn't understand who Jesus was. If you lived in that time frame, you wouldn't have the teachings of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who show us what Jesus did, but also kind of give us an interpretive lens to show why he did it. You wouldn't have the words of Paul and James, who kind of give us the theology of the gospel, words of Peter. You wouldn't have the record of Acts, the early church, and how the gospel spread throughout the Roman Empire. You wouldn't have the testimony of missionaries who gave their life so the gospel could go forward. You wouldn't have the testimony of ordinary, average people who made Christ their treasure, who lived and died in, through faith in Christ. You wouldn't have any of that if you lived there. And so all of us, in a sense, are always standing on the shoulders of giants who walked before us. And of course, we are standing on the foundation of our king, King Jesus. Shortly before his death, Jesus said this, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life and loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will be all my servant also. 
If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it. So in his death on the cross, Jesus is that seed, that grain of wheat that falls into the ground and dies. And through his sacrificial death, through that seed, the kingdom of God sprouts and grows. And so Jesus is our foundation. We don't save people. We are reaping the harvest of those who have come before us, primarily the foundation of Jesus Christ. Now, in saying that, you might be thinking to yourself, well, I mean, in, the, in, in Paul's writings, he talks about people doing kind of certain things. One person uh, plants, one person waters, one person reaps. Now, I think that's kind of a different picture. That's true. You know, in this life, there's sometimes we invest in people and we're just kind of planting the seed. We don't uh, see the harvest. We don't see them come to Christ. And that's kind of a different conversation. But I think all that we're talking about here is that there is a foundation, that there's people who have come before us namely Christ, and we, we're reaping the harvest of what they've done uh, before us. So we see Jesus' greatest delight was in doing the will of the Heavenly Father, and we see this in two contexts. We see this first in this passage when something remarkable has happened when the Samaritans, who uh, were looked down upon by the Jews, which no, who nobody would think would be spiritual, are coming to faith in Christ in droves, and it's extraordinary, and Jesus is probably ecstatic about what is happening in that context and so his desire for, uh, to see God's will done, to see God's uh, mission accomplished is greater than the desire for food. But we also see his desire to do God's will in this other context, in the context of his death. We see his desire to do God's will even when it's difficult. When he faced the prospect of a brutal death. Rejection by his people, the temporary rejection by his father. Still, he said, Father, glorify your name. It wasn't that he looked forward to doing those things, but he took delight in doing God's will and accomplishing God's mission. Now, you might say to yourself, well, that's great. That was Jesus. I'm not Jesus. Of course, Jesus could do something like that. Well, there are Many examples of people throughout the history of the church, of people who had that same delight in God's will, or a similar delight. There's a man named Jim Elliott who was a missionary to Ecuador and uh, eventually was martyred for his faith. He said this, I have found that the most extravagant dreams of boyhood have not surpassed the great experience of being in the will of God. And I believe that nothing could be better. Famous Christian and Missionary Alliance pastor A.W. Tozer said this, I am thy servant to do thy will. And that will is sweeter to me than position or riches or fame. And I choose it above all things on earth or in heaven. A man by the name of David Brainerd, who was a missionary to the Native Americans and uh, ended up dying uh, from tuberculosis at age 29, said this, All my desire was the conversion of the heathen. I declare now I am dying. I would not have spent my life otherwise for the whole world. Apostle Paul said this, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. King David wrote in Psalm 40, I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. 
So hypothetical question. I'm not asking you to raise your hand or anything like that, but hypothetical question. How many of us have that desire? How many of us desire God's mission, God's will to be accomplished above all else? How many of us can say with the psalmist, I delight to do your will, O God? How many of us can say with the Apostle Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain? I think probably many of us, maybe we couldn't say that. Maybe we think to ourselves, maybe that kind of devotion is kind of reserved for super Christians. Of course, our Savior Christ had that kind of devotion. And then there's maybe some other super Christians, pastors and missionaries and Bible school teachers and all these kind of super Christians that could have that kind of desire. But I could never have that kind of desire. Well, I think the Scripture teaches that all of us should have that desire, that delight in God's will. So why are many of us not there? Why are many of us not at a place where the will of God and the mission of God delights our hearts maybe even more than that physical uh, desire for food? That it's that kind of pull, that has that kind of pull on our hearts, just like food has that pull on our bodies the will of God should have that pull in our hearts. Why don't we experience that? Why don't we have that delight in God's will? I, I think maybe the reason is that we don't delight in God's presence. I think the reason that maybe we don't delight in God's will and God's mission is that we don't delight in God's presence. And if we don't delight in God's presence, then we won't delight in God's mission. See, Jesus' mission was rooted and sustained by a relationship. It began in a relationship, and it was all rooted in that relationship. It wasn't just about doing things for God. It was always about a relationship. We see this uh, in John chapter 1, verse 1, right at the beginning of the gospel. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was what? It was with God, relationship, and, it was, and He was God. Luke chapter 5, verses 5 to 16, it says this, but now even more the report about him, Jesus went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. He spent time in the presence of God. What's the title or the way that, God refers, or that Jesus refers to God the most? He refers to him as Father. It's a relationship. It all begins in a relationship. And that's true of Jesus, but it was also true of the other people that I quoted. The Apostle Paul, he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. His mission, his accomplishments were all because of his relationship with God. You see, David, the same David who said, I delight to do your will, O God, in Psalm 40, said in Psalm 63, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Delight in God's mission and God's will flows from a delight in God's presence. In a recent book titled uh, Faith for Exiles, Dave Kinneman and Matt, uh, Mark Matlock uh, looked at what they did studies and, and polls, and they look at kind of what separates young adults who uh, grew up in the church and they stay faithful to the Lord, and uh, young adults who grew up in the church and then kind of go astray as they grow up. And he found that the thing that kind of separated these two groups 
was the, two, the people who he described as resilient disciples who stuck with it were people who delighted in the presence of God. He said that they experienced greater joy and intimacy with Jesus. He said, compared with those that simply attend church, resilient disciples are far more likely to say that their relationship with Jesus brings them joy. 90% versus 48%. That it shapes their whole life and body, mind, heart, and soul. 88% versus 51%. And impacts the way they live every day. 86% versus 49%. They have a richer prayer life. Resilient disciples are more likely to say that Time with Jesus re-energizes their life, 87% versus 46%. That reading the Bible makes them feel closer to God, 87% versus 44%. Listening to God is a big part of their prayer life, 78% versus 48%. And prayer does not feel like a chore, but a vibrant part of their life, 64% versus 39%. If we don't delight in the presence of God, then we won't delight in doing the will of God. Now, the ancient Jews and many Christians, maybe even most Christians throughout the ages, have practiced uh, practice that uh, most of us don't practice today, and that's fasting. Now, when we think about fasting, you know, I often thought about the Pharisees. And you look in the, in the Scripture at the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were kind of driven by this legalism, where it was like uh, if they were fasting, they would put these, you know, dirty, tattered clothing on. They wouldn't, you know, wash their face, and then they'd walk around, and then people would be like, hey, what's going on? What's the matter? And they would be, well, I'm fasting to the Lord today. I can't eat today. And it was like this badge of honor that they were fasting. And so we see this legalism that they experienced that's recorded in the Gospels, and we're like, hmm, I shouldn't do anything. I shouldn't do something like that. And we're like, well, I don't know about this fasting idea. And uh, so we think about fasting. I think, honestly, I think if we're honest, maybe the reason we don't think about fasting more and maybe we don't practice it is because it's hard. It's not something we want to do. And what we often do is uh, we, sometimes we say to ourselves, well, fasting can be fasting from anything. We can fast from social media or for, from chocolate or from any number of things. And that's True, and those things, you know, could be good and appropriate to do at, at certain times. I think maybe sometimes the reason we do that is because we don't really want to give up food. It's like we're willing to give up something else that's maybe not quite as hard, but we're not willing to give up food. And yet Jesus expected that his disciples would fast. He says, when you fast. He doesn't say, uh, if you fast. He expected the disciples would fast. And in the scriptures... We're talking about fasting. Usually fasting was abstaining from food. So why is that significant? And of course we know that, you know, if there's some people who uh, have health difficulties and they're not able to abstain from food, and God understands that. God doesn't want to put you in a position that's going to risk your health. Uh, but for, for those of us who are able, it's something I believe that God may call us to do from time to time. And I think that abstaining from food for a time uh, kind of makes a powerful statement. Because when we abstain from food, when we fast, what we're saying is that, in essence, God's will and God's presence are more important to me than food. That my desire for God's will and God's presence are even more important to me than this physical desire for food, even though we all need, need food. We need it to sustain us. And we're saying, I, I need God's presence. 
I need to do God's will more than I even need this food that's going to keep my body working. And that's what Jesus did in this passage. He says, I, I need God's will. I need to accomplish God's mission, and I need that more than I need food. What might it look like for us to practice fasting on a regular basis, to develop that posture in our, in our hearts? I, I'll be the first to admit, I've fasted. I don't do it regularly. I have done it in the past. It's tough. It's hard. It's not something that we look forward to doing. But what kind of statement would that make? What kind of work would God do in our souls if maybe we did practice that regularly? If we said, God, you're more important than even something that's integral to my life. You're more important than food. For those who maybe don't have a regular time of worship with God, a private Bible reading and worship, what would it look like for us to start practicing that, to start delighting in God's presence? What would our church look like if we all started doing these things? So if we don't delight in God's presence, we won't delight in God's mission. So my parents uh, own a dog and pet hotel, as, as most of you know, and uh, people will come leave their dogs and cats on, when they go on vacation, and uh, my mom does grooming, and I worked at my parents' business from the time I was in high school, part-time, basically up till last year I was even working there one day a week. And uh, the thing about that is um, I respect what my parents do, and uh, it was kind of their dream to have this business where uh, they, people could bring their animals and, and go on vacation. They wouldn't have to worry about whether they were taken care of or not. And uh, my, my parents love animals, and that was just kind of their dream. And, and that was an awesome dream for them to be able to accomplish that. But for me, working there, it wasn't my dream. I didn't necessarily like doing, you know, those kinds of things. I, I, I like dogs, not so much cats, but I like dogs. Uh, but I, I didn't really enjoy doing all the things that were involved in taking care of the animals and, and, and stuff like that. Um, but the thing that was interesting was, I mean, I work with a lot of other employees and stuff, and the thing was, I never really was afraid of getting fired. I mean, it was my parents that worked there, and... That's not to say I, I, couldn't, I, I could have gotten fired. If I didn't take care of the animals properly, I wouldn't be working there. There's no question about that. But when I was taking care of customers, I wasn't taking care of them and trying to make them happy because uh, I uh, was afraid of getting fired. The reason that I was trying to make them happy was because it was my parents' business. And I was trying to make them happy because if they were happy, it was a reflection on my parents. And so if I heard that things were going well in my parents' business, I, it brought joy to my heart. If things were not going as well, it kind of saddened my heart. It was all because of the relationship. I didn't feel that way about other people's businesses, but it was my parents' business. I think that's what's happening in this passage. Jesus has this desire to do the Father's work. It began in a relationship. It began in the presence of God. He was in the beginning with God, and he was God. And he wants to accomplish his Father's work, fulfill the task that he had for him. And it was so, his desire to accomplish the Father's will was so strong that it was stronger than desire for food. If only we had that same heart. If only God's presence and God's mission were number one in our lives. What kind of 
changes would happen in our hearts? What kind of changes would happen in our church? What kind of changes would happen in the relationships around us? I'd like to read a simple prayer offered by a man named Benjamin Jenks, spiritual writer from the 17th century and also a minister, I believe. In closing, he says this, O Lord, renew our spirits and draw our hearts unto thyself, that our work may not be to us a burden, but a delight. And give us such a mighty love to thee as may sweeten all of our obedience. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for setting the foundation for us, for dying on the cross for our sins, for rising again so that we might have new life. Lord, we see your example in the scripture, how your desire to do the Father's will was stronger even than the desire for food. Lord, we pray that our hearts would be moved towards you. That your name and your renown would be the desire of our souls. That we would desire your presence, your will, your mission, above any other desire that we have. Lord, we can't do that on our own. The only way we can have the desire is that if your Holy Spirit moves in our hearts to transform us. And Lord, today we ask that your Holy Spirit would invade our hearts. That you would change us, make us more like you. That we desire you with all of our hearts. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.